Okay, well, welcome back to Systematic Theology. We're on session 45, and um, we are continuing to look at redemption, which is God's work, God's project of choosing a people for himself, accomplishing their redemption from sin, then applying that redemption to the elect. And our structure for this part of the study is to go through the logical order of God's application of salvation benefits to his people, and that order of application, once again, it's called the Ordo Salutis. It's just Latin for the order of salvation. And uh, different Reformed you know, theologians, they do differ a bit on, uh, the, on the order, but I've been presenting the order in which they've been uh, printed here in your notes. And we've made it through the order of salvation from election to the effectual call to regeneration. That's just another name for the new birth. And we're continuing to look at steps 2A and 2B, repentance unto life, and faith in Jesus Christ. And I decided to handle this slightly out of order from the list in your notes by looking at step 2B first, which is faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there's no logical order between faith and repentance. They both happen as part of conversion. The theologian Gerhardus Voss puts both faith and repentance under the work of conversion. And when God the Holy Spirit applies redemption to an elect person, that person is converted and that conversion includes both repentance and faith. But I want to look at saving faith first because I want to make it clear that faith alone is the instrument of what you're going to see coming up, justification. Faith alone is the instrument of justification. What do I mean when I say that faith is the instrument of justification? What does the word instrument mean? We can think of instrument as an empty hand receiving a gift. Faith is the extended empty hand of the beggar receiving the gift from the wealthy person. So I wanted to make it clear that it's faith alone, sola fide, as we saw in the last study, that is the instrument of justification. Now as we go on further tonight on the subject of saving faith, we also need to look at false faith, a so-called faith that's not really saving faith. If you'd like to follow along, I'm going to turn first to a familiar parable from Christ, the parable of the four soils. I'll be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. In this parable, Jesus speaks of different people who hear the word of God, the gospel. And the different people have hearts that have uh, certain characteristics that have an effect on how they respond to the word of God, the word of the kingdom. And one of the soil types where the seed lands is soil with a rock bed just underneath. I'm going to be reading in Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 13, where Jesus explains the response of this type of heart to his disciples. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. The person that Jesus compares to the rocky soil actually receives the word and receives it with joy, and you may have seen this kind of person before. They might be in a church service where the gospel is presented, and the message appeals to them, and they react with emotionalism because, you know, the gospel does have a majesty to it. One commentator classifies this kind of heart as an impulsive heart. John Calvin 
explains this false faith in this way, and I'll quote from Calvin. We do not doubt that such persons, prompted by some taste of the word, greedily seize upon it and begin to feel its divine power, so that they impose a false show of faith, not only upon the eyes of men, but even upon their own minds. Calvin goes on to say, when they hold a certain kind of emotional reverence for Scripture, they think that this emotion is really true saving faith. And in the parable, the person has no root. They can fool others for the time being, and they can fool themselves for a time. And they can fool themselves that their faith is genuine saving faith, but the truth of the gospel never really penetrates to their heart. And it's never solid, it's never fixed, it's never rooted. Calvin, once again, I'll quote from Calvin, he stated it this way, they had zeal for a while, but they never really examined their hearts, and they deceived themselves with a false opinion of themselves. Now, what it finally takes for their faith to be shown as false is a time of testing of their faith. Now, some with false faith might be church members for some time. Now, Paul, who I believe to be the author of Hebrews, I'll be in Hebrews chapter 6 next. He warns that there are some who fall into this category. They've tasted of the heavenly gift, but they fall away. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, it says, For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now this is a much debated passage. And if you'd like a full, a full teaching on it, Pastor Tim did teach on this passage when he went through the book of Hebrews. And if you go to Sermon Audio and listen to the teaching titled Impossible to Restore from the year 2015, you're going to hear an excellent explanation of it. This is a difficult passage of Scripture because it might seem that it's describing people who are truly saved and then they lose their salvation by walking away from that genuine salvation. And Arminian churches believe that a person can be genuinely saved, and then they choose to walk away. And they actually lose a salvation that was really genuine. But what this passage is describing is the difference between the visible church and the invisible church. What is the visible church and what is the invisible church? The visible church is the outward, organized church on earth. The people who are members of Christian churches, are they're a mixed group. There are those in the church, of course, who are truly saved. But there's others who are hypocrites. Those we accept as saved based on their own testimony, but they're only wearing a, a Christian mask, so to speak. The truth about the hypocrite, it might remain hidden for a long time. And they may be fooling not only believers, they might be fooling themselves. But the hypocrite is not part of what we call the invisible church. The invisible church is made up only of the truly saved on earth and in heaven. It's invisible because for us, the exact identity of the elect versus well-hidden hypocrites, it's invisible to us. 
those who are who, the people who truly belong to God, they're visible to him. But we have no visible way of sorting out hypocrites until their mask slips. And now that we know the difference between the visible church and the invisible church, let's go back to where we were at Hebrews chapter 6 in that debated passage. There are people who continue in the visible church for a time. During that time, the church, in love, concludes that their faith is genuine based on what they can see outwardly. They are part of the visible church. And there are, as one theologian phrased it, privileges to being in the visible church. There's privileges. They can share in an outward way, but not inwardly, in certain benefits. As long as they are with God's people, they hear truth. Hebrews 6.4 says they were once enlightened and know what the truth is. They have an intellectual apprehension that Jesus is the Messiah. Hebrews 6.4 says they've tasted the heavenly gift. The gift is the gift of salvation. The trouble is they only tasted it rather than truly benefiting from this gift. They've seen the effects of salvation among them in the visible church and tasted of the goodness of salvation that way, but they have not benefited themselves. Now, this reminds me of going to a really nice restaurant, and to begin the meal, the server brings what is called an amuse-bouche. An amuse-bouche is a very small appetizer, just one single bite to give you an anticipation of something greater to come, the whole meal. These people, in the midst of the visible church, those with false faith, they see the effects of the blessings of true salvation around them. They taste of this benefit by witnessing what's going on and thinking that they themselves have the full meal, but they only have an amuse-bouche, a taste and not the benefit of the meal. If I went to a really good restaurant and they brought that one bite, amuse-bouche, and I had that taste, and then the server brings the bill and says, that concludes the meal. I wouldn't feel that I had benefited at all. In fact, I'd been better off just not, not getting that anticipation of the meal with the amuse-bouche and then finding out the benefit of the meal would not be for me. Hebrews 6.4 says they've shared in the Holy Spirit. They have participated in the table of the Lord with believers and witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit in believers on a day-to-day -day basis. Hebrews 6.5 says they've tasted the goodness of the word of God. When God speaks, they, man receives a wonderful gift. But once again, Paul says they've only tasted of this wonderful gift of God speaking in Scripture. They've been exposed to the goodness of the word of God being taught, but the goodness of the word and the teaching of the word has not truly penetrated the heart. Hebrews 6.5 says they've tasted of the powers of the age to come. They have witnessed spiritual gifts granted by the Holy Spirit in their midst. They've tasted of these powers of the age to come, the power of the Holy Spirit, not by being personally filled with the Holy Spirit, but by proximity to true believers. There is true privilege to being part of the visible church, even for those who are hypocrites. But in the case of hypocrites, that privilege is just an amuse-bouche, just a taste, not the meal. That privilege of proximity only means they have no excuse on the day of judgment. Hebrews 6.6 6 tells us 
the results of this inexcusable rejection of Christ after receiving that kind of privilege. They've crossed a fearful line. They cannot be brought to repentance. Their privilege of proximity to the benefits of the covenant works against them because after all this privilege, they hold up Christ in mockery and contempt. Here's what John Calvin wrote about that passage. He wrote, With this sort of vengeance, the apostle threatens willful apostates who, while they fall away from faith in the gospel, mock God, scornfully despise his grace, profane and trample Christ's blood, yea, as much as it lies in their power, crucify him again. For Paul does not, as certain austere folk would preposterously have it, cut off hope of pardon from all voluntary sins, but he teaches that apostasy deserves no excuse. So that is no wonder God avenges such sacrilegious contempt of himself with inexorable rigor. Let's look now at a New Testament example of a person who appeared to have genuine faith for a time, but it proved to be false faith. And I'm going to turn next to the book of Acts, chapter 8. Acts, chapter 8. And here we're going to meet a man known as Simon the Magician. As we come to Acts, chapter 8, Philip is preaching the gospel in Samaria. God was working miraculous signs through Philip as he preached, casting out unclean spirits and healing paralyzed and lame people. One of the people who was affected by what he saw was Simon. And that's where we pick up the account in Acts chapter 8. And I'll read first from verses 9 to 13. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now this man, Simon, he had a great reputation in the city of Samaria. Simon wasn't like stage magicians today, where everyone knows the, the show is a series of tricks, even though we don't know how it's being done. Simon wanted power over people. He wanted prestige. Simon promoted himself as truly having great supernatural power. Everyone from the least of the city to the greatest was convinced that he had genuine divine power, that his magic was not trickery. He gathered an audience from the whole city, from all levels of society, and they all responded by declaring, this man is the power of God that is called great. Simon had succeeded in bringing a, a kind of spell of superstitious belief throughout the city surrounding his so-called power. In fact, there's early Christian writings that ascribe to Simon widespread influence beyond the city of Samaria. But now, Simon is witnessing God working through Philip. The ESV translates these works as signs and great miracles. But the Greek can also be translated signs and great 
powers. Signs and great powers. Simon had basked in the superstitious belief of the people that he was the power of God that is called great. But Simon's now seeing great powers. Great powers that were obviously from God. The belief of the Samaritans when they were baptized was genuine. Because when Peter and John arrived there and laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. But the text doesn't state that Simon himself ever received the Holy Spirit. And we now begin to see the difference between genuine saving faith and false faith. But at this point, Simon does profess, profess belief in the gospel, and he's baptized. And he becomes temporarily a member of the visible church. And for a time, Simon is accepted as a genuine believer. Now let's move forward to Acts chapter 8, and I'll read verses 14 to 24. Verses 14 to 24, and this is where the mask of hypocrisy slips, and Simon's faith is exposed as false. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that none of what you have said may come upon me. So let's compare the situation of Simon while he was a member of the visible church with what we read in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, where we were a few minutes ago. Simon was enlightened. He had heard the preaching of the gospel, and he gave the appearance of accepting that knowledge. He had the great blessing of being enlightened with the visible church. He tasted of the heavenly gift. He witnessed the greatness of many in Samaria coming to genuine faith and being saved from their sins as the gift of God. Simon, in a sense, tasted of that gift of God of salvation, not by being saved himself, but by being in close proximity to those who were being genuinely saved and changed. Simon shared in the Holy Spirit by seeing believers at the Lord's table and by seeing the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those around him. Simon tasted the goodness of the word of God. He had heard it preached, and he saw the effect that this spiritual food had on others. Simon had tasted the powers of the age to come. Simon had billed himself as the power of God that is called great, but he is now witnessing genuine divine power, the powers of the age to come, the work of the Holy Spirit, in the exercise of spiritual gifts in believers, and in the signs and great powers being worked through Philip. Simon had the great advantages 
the advantages of being among covenant privileges, the greatest spiritual advantages possible. But Simon only tasted of these things. He had the amus bush, but the full meal was denied to him. In verse 21, the hypocritical mask of Simon is taken away. He's exposed as someone having false faith. And Peter tells Simon that even though he may have tasted the amus bush, the full meal is now denied to him. Peter tells him, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. Then the rebuke of Peter goes on as we get to verse 23, where it says, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. The gall of bitterness. Peter discerns that Simon is in the gall of bitterness. The word translated gall was associated with substances with an unpleasant or bitter taste. This bitterness of Simon wasn't an emotional state, but his being in a poisonous state of sin. To bring out the full impact of Peter's use of this phrase, gall of bitterness, we can follow a link to two other passages. First, if you'd like to follow along, I'll read from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. As we lead up to verse 15, Paul is encouraging the Hebrew Christians to follow Christ's example of perseverance and patience in suffering persecution. He also gives this warning in verse 15 about those who turn away from the faith under suffering. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. If you're reading from the ESV, you'll see that the translators added quotation marks around the words root of bitterness. This is because Paul in Hebrews was likely bringing to mind a passage from Deuteronomy. That's where our second scriptural link is found. I'll read next from Deuteronomy chapter 29. I'll read verses 16 to 20. Deuteronomy 29 verses 16 to 20. Now this passage is part of Moses' address to Israel in the land of Moab, given to the descendants of those who fell in the wilderness. Moses caused these descendants to swear once again to the covenant. And in verse 18, he warned the people to not turn from authorized worship of the true God to serve the false gods of the nations or to walk in disobedience in the stubbornness of their heart. Now read Deuteronomy 29, starting in verse 16. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man 
and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Moses is warning against the spiral of descent into a high-handed sin, a sin that would be caused by a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And we can link this warning from Moses to the warning given in the book of Hebrews. The warning is against this root of bitterness. The Hebrew Christians were in danger of a root of bitterness taking root in their hearts, then bearing the fruit of sin and unbelief. Like the people being warned in Deuteronomy, this fruit would be coupled with a a sense of false security. I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. The final result will be the same as the warning of Moses, God's wrath, jealousy, judgment, and curses. Now we can go back to Simon the magician in Acts 3, or in Acts chapter 8, verse 23. Peter said to Simon, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter warned Simon of the extreme danger he was in. This is the same danger of the root of bitterness that Moses warned of and of the root of bitterness that the Hebrew Christians were warned of in the book of Hebrews. When we read of the divine curse against those of Israel who were part of the the visible assembly of God's people, but they had stubbornness in their hearts, it should drive home to us that we as Christians are not playing around with religious ideas that have no consequences. This is no game. This isn't the Oprah Winfrey show where people play around with various semi-religious ideas as kind of a hobby for their own amusement or comfort. The truth is far more serious than finding your own brand of spirituality. We're talking about the powers of the age to come. When Simon was finally revealed as not having truly been born again, when Peter rightly said of him that he was in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity, Peter called upon him to repent. In Acts 8.22, Peter lays out Simon's heart condition and the only remaining chance for Simon to escape the curse from God on those who have the heart root of bitterness. When he said, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. The spiritual state of Simon was a state of wickedness. From this state of wickedness, there was a thought process that Christianity was just superior magic. It could be used to gain power over people. The result of Simon's thought process was the intent of his heart to purchase the gift of the Holy Spirit with money. Peter holds out one last hope for Simon. He commands him to immediately and truly repent. But Peter's language shows the extreme danger that Simon has crossed a fearful line. Pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. There's no tone of consolation from Peter towards Simon. This was not a time for consoling. This was a solemn and serious time, and a time of severe warning. Simon may have crossed a line with his false faith that showed he was not among the elect, and that he may never have real heart change and sincerely seek forgiveness. Peter's warning 
certainly applied to Simon because in verse 24, we see that Simon did not repent. It says in Acts 8.24, And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. The fact that Simon was not born again is shown in the fact that he didn't repent at that point. He just didn't want divine punishment. He still thought of Christianity as just being superior magic. And he asked Peter and John, who he apparently thought to be superior magicians, to pray on his behalf. And here, the chapter closes on Simon. The privileges of proximity to the covenant that Simon had in his brief time in the visible church only added to judgment for him. He was part of the visible church for a time, but not part of the invisible church, the true elect. His faith was a false faith, a faith that was only outward and could not save. Now, there's an interesting contrast in the book of Acts between the sad story of Simon's false faith and the genuine saving faith of the converts in Ephesus. And I'm going to read next from Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. I read verses 17 to 20. In this section, the gospel is going forth with power. Even though there is resistance, there were people who were previously practitioners of magic who became believers. Now we come to the passage that is a contrast to the account of Simon the magician. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So what's the contrast? Contrast is that Simon's false faith was shown to be false because he never repented of practicing magic. To Simon, what Philip, Peter, and John preached, was just that was just a superior form of occult magic, a more direct route to divine power. But the true converts of Ephesus, who had previously been involved with occult practices, showed true faith with true repentance. Their faith was tested because they were confronted. What do we do with these books that have so much value on the open market? You know, commentators seem to agree that these 50,000 pieces of silver were Greek drachmas, with each drachma being worth about a day's wage. 50,000 days' wages. The Ephesian converts, in order to publicly repent of their occult practices, instead of selling the scrolls, made a bonfire out of them. Their genuine faith led them to make a hard break with the past. Simon never repented. He never made a hard break with his past. His thinking was still immersed in the occult. In both of these examples, the Ephesians and Simon, whether their faith was genuine, it was shown by testing. Simon was tested by seeing the work of the Holy Spirit, which led him to try to purchase this power. And today, you know, we get... A, a word in English, simony. If you've ever heard that word, simony. Kind of an old-fashioned word, simony. We get our word simony from Simon. Simony means to buy or sell the privileges of the church. 
Simon's response under testing revealed the falsehood of his faith. When the Ephesians were tested, on the other hand, they showed the genuine nature of their faith by repenting of alcohol practices. The Ephesians publicly repented by refusing to sell the scrolls for money, and instead they burned them. You know, we started this evening by looking at the parable of the soils, and we read the part about the rocky soil, and I'll read that one verse again, Luke 8.13, where it says, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. Jesus' explanation is that this person has no root. In the parallel account in Matthew, the explanation is that he has no root in himself. The gospel never really took deep hold within him, in his heart. He received the word with joy, but that reception and joy were based on externals. With Simon, the externals were the displays of power from the apostles. Simon believed for a while, but it wasn't saving faith. It was not a faith with root in Simon. What he had was enthusiasm based on outward things, not true joy based on the word having root in him. When the time of test comes, the enthusiasm goes away. What's the result? There are three accounts of the parable of the soils in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Luke, the Greek used says he withdrew or fell away from the faith. In Matthew and Mark, the Greek word used there says he was caused to fall because he was shocked and offended. The word there comes to us in English as scandalized. Simon was scandalized, and he withdrew from his false faith when the reality of Christianity didn't line up with the externals that generated his initial excitement. The Ephesians, who burned their occult scrolls, showed the genuine nature of their faith by the fruit of repentance. And we're going to look at repentance in a later session coming up down the line. But for now, repentance is a genuine change of mind that comes with the new birth. In the last session, we looked at how saving faith is the instrument of justification. Saving faith is the open hand of the beggar to receive the gift from the rich man. God doesn't justify us based on any good works he foresees we will do once we're saved. Salvation is a free gift given by God's grace. But the Reformed are careful to distinguish saving faith from false faith. Because all of salvation, the entire ordo salutis, the entire order of salvation, is God's project in us. Saving faith will inevitably lead to God working repentance and sanctification within us. There's no such thing as saving faith that doesn't lead to the rest of the ordo salutis. You can't stop halfway. If it's genuine saving faith, if it's genuinely God's project, the entire ordo salutis will result. There's no such thing as saving faith that's disconnected from repentance and gradual change in our lives. Now, there's a common phrase to describe this. We are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. We are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Now, many misunderstand when they read the epistle of James 
in what they see maybe as a contradiction between Paul and James. Paul emphasizes justification by faith alone. But James, on first reading, might seem to have an issue with that. And I'm going to read from James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, one of the things we should notice about this verse is that James is singling out the person who only says he has faith. He only says he has faith. James doesn't refer to a person who may actually have saving faith. Instead, James is pointing to the person who's making a claim to faith. If a person truly has saving faith, it is certain that that person is saved. But that is not necessarily so with a person who's making a claim to faith. Their claim may be true or it may be false. Simon made a claim of faith. He was even baptized. He made a claim to faith and at first gave every appearance that his faith was genuine saving faith. There are many in churches who claim to believe in Christ. Most Americans will still claim to be Christian if you ask them about 65%. Although that percentage goes down every year. But a majority of those who claim Christian faith believe that moral truth is up to the individual to decide. In the past, people who made a claim to faith might answer that the scriptures give us a standard of moral truth. But now, even among people claiming to be evangelical Christians, only 43% think there's absolute moral truth. Turns out that many turn to other sources for moral truth, like their own inner certainty, scientific proof, tradition, or agreeing with the general public. More and more people who claim faith reject the scriptures as the standard of morality. Christianity, throughout its history, has had to navigate between two extremes when looking at the moral law of God. And these extremes are nomism and antinomianism. What does that mean? The word nomism comes from the Greek word namas, meaning law. Nomism means that we keep some kind of law as a means of gaining merit in the sight of God. To the person who believes in nomism, God's law, and in particular the moral law, it's not just a pattern for Christian living like it should be, but it's a means of salvation. Nomism is the notion that your own works carry saving merit. It holds that Christ plus works that we bring to the table are necessary. And Paul had to battle a form of this when he wrote against the Judaizers who held that in order to be saved, one had to first become a Jew and submit to circumcision and then live under this full ceremonial law of God. Later on, Christians became ascetic monks living under self-imposed poverty. And they would renounce all desire, thinking that this kind of life is somehow God's will. And Paul, in his letters, battled against nomism, a false way of salvation that comes by law-keeping. But the readers of the letter of James, on the other hand, they needed a different emphasis. The readers of the letter of James apparently really didn't need their doctrine to be corrected so much, but they needed to be reminded of the danger of antinomianism. And antinomianism is the belief that Christianity is a morality-free religion. 
Do what you want. The reader of the letter from James needed to be reminded of the difference between true saving faith and false faith. Once again, there's no such thing as saving faith that doesn't lead to the rest of the Ordo Salutis. There's no such thing as saving faith that's disconnected from repentance and gradual change in our lives. There's no such thing as as an impenitent Christian. Remember that phrase, we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. We're not saved by works. Our works are not the foundation of our justification before God. But when God gives one of his elect the gift of saving faith, he also follows with the rest of his divine project. What James warned against is false faith, a mere claim to faith. Let's go a bit further in James chapter 2, to verses 17 and 18, and then on to verse 24. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Then in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, this verse isn't saying that our works are the basis of our justification. Instead, we are justified or vindicated in the sight of other people by good works as fruit and evidence of our true faith. When others see our works, we prove before others that we're not hypocrites. Our works vindicate us before men. We're not just making some empty claim to faith. The challenge to Christianity through the ages has been to walk this road between two ditches, gnomism and antinomianism. We are not gnomists. We don't seek salvation on the basis of our own works, but on the basis of Christ's finished work, which we lay hold of by faith. On the other hand, we are not antinomianisms or antinomians. We don't regard Christianity as a morality-free religion. When God grants When God grants the gift of saving faith, God also grants the rest of the order of salvation. God grants the rest of the ordo salutis, which includes gradual sanctification. God grants the whole project. We are his project. One way that we see the revealing of false faith in today's culture is this word that we see thrown around these days, which is the word deconstruction. Deconstruction. This word is used when a person suddenly leaves the church behind, leaves behind what they said they believed, and then excuses it by saying that they're going through a process of deconstructing their faith. What is deconstruction? When someone claims to be going through a process of deconstructing their faith, well, it can mean several things depending on who you're talking to. It's not the same thing in every case. But it seems that most often it refers to a person who claimed to have genuine faith and hold Christian doctrine, but they've suddenly decided to jettison that faith. They will claim they're, well, I'm more widely read now. I've been exposed to other ideas, and I've decided to question the clear meaning of Scripture and those who preach the meaning of Scripture. And where this process leads is to what some call deconversion. But I don't think that's a correct term. No one can be deconverted. 
If someone's truly converted, this means they are regenerated and have true saving faith and repentance unto life. No one can fall from this. A truly saved person, yeah, will have periods of less and greater faith. And we may go through real dark nights of the soul, but we'll never be deconverted. An apparent deconversion means the person was never converted to begin with. You know what? I don't even like the term de, uh, deconstruction because the term, it tries to put a philosophical spin on the real and ugly term we should call it. And that term is apostasy. When we, what we see when we come across someone who is part of the visible church but then leaves the visible church and denies the faith, that is what is called apostasy. The word comes from Greek by way of Latin, and it means to renounce or abandon the faith. I'll turn next to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. And here we can see an occasion when Jesus separates those with true faith from those with false faith. As we come to this passage in John, chapter 6, beginning in verse 60, Jesus had taught some difficult things. And many who were following him, they called them hard sayings. They became offended at these hard sayings. I'll read from John chapter 6, verses 60 to 69. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if he were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There was a group of disciples who followed Jesus. Verse 64 tells us that Jesus knew their hearts and knew from the beginning who were the ones with false faith, who had apparent belief but not true faith. In verse 65, Jesus tells them that one can be a true disciple with true faith only if this is granted to him by the Father. In verse 63, Jesus says this true faith can't be duplicated with fleshly power. When he says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Then we come to verse 66, where there is a separation. Many disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. Then Jesus turns to the twelve and asks them which group they are in. Those who are apostates or those with true faith. Peter then makes a good confession, a confession of true faith. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. When Peter gave his confession... He showed his faith to consist in knowledge, assent, and trust. Remember those three elements of saving faith, knowledge, assent, and trust. 
Peter's confession contained those things. Peter stated that Jesus had the words of eternal life, so he had knowledge revealed by Jesus. He assented to or agreed with those words because he said, and we have believed. Peter trusted that those words were not only true, but true for him. And he relied on Jesus because he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? All his eggs were in one basket. Peter's confession was one of knowledge, assent, and trust, the elements of true faith. And this brings us to the end of our time tonight, but for the next session, we're going to look at each of the elements of faith, which are knowledge, assent, and trust. And I'll wrap up by quoting from the end of Spurgeon's sermon on John chapter 6. He said, If you are really built upon the rock of ages, you may meet the question without dismay, will you also go away? And you can reply without presumption, Lord, no, Lord, I cannot, and I will not go. For to whom should I go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Amen.